0: It's good, it's good to focus on Jesus together today. In song, and in prayer, in scripture reading, and now also in sermon. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. A little bit of a surprise for those of you who are expecting us to move on in John. John. I'll explain it to you just briefly. The reason why we're hitting First Corinthians 11 today is because we're celebrating communion together as a church tonight. And since we ended those sermons on unity over the last couple of weeks saying that one of our primary expressions of such unity is at the Lord's table, it seemed pastorally wise to me for us to spend some time reflecting on the Lord's table to prepare us for that Foundational expression of our unity together as a church. So we're going to do that uh, today. We'll do it again um, in a few months when we come to historical communion again. I'll break off of whatever series we're doing, preach on communion, and do that a few more times to make sure we're doing this well as a church. First Corinthians chapter eleven, and for uh, our focus today, we're going to be uh, beginning at verse seventeen. And reading all the way down to verse 26, I'll read for us. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's been a recent epidemic in our country that has multiplied over the last 20 years in particular. It's not as much the presence of something as it is the growing absence of something. And it's none other than the family meal. Over the last 20 years, sociologists have reported that family meals have decreased by 33%. Another research group has actually said that um, 62% of parents with children under 18 wish they had family dinners much more often or somewhat more often. Uh, the reason why people can't take the time to get together for these meals, they're busy. Harvard Business School researched the same phenomenon and found out that 46% of people don't have family, members as, um, family dinners as often as they want to have them because uh, they have uh, too much going on. And while for many of us this could just seem like a unique American phenomenon, the dying of a meaningless tradition. I mean, after all, all we need is just to get the food into our bodies. Who cares if everybody eats it together? The research, not even Christians, but the research from non-Christians would say that this is having a more devastating impact on our society than anyone could calculate. They say that uh, according to the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University, kids and teens who share family dinners three or more times per week are, and here's the real effects of family dinners, again, according to the secular research. Three or more times a week, teens are less likely to be overweight, more likely to eat healthy food. They perform better academically. They're less likely to engage in risky behaviors such as drugs, alcohol, and sexual activity, and they have better relationships with their parents. Kind of a big deal. I think most of us in here would cherish that and say, yeah, we need to fight for that. It's good. It's good for families to eat together. And yet, at the same time as this epidemic of a decline in family dinners is uh, on our horizon and at our door, so also we've seen, interestingly, a decline in church family dinners. We understand the sociological importance of eating together as a physical family. And yet when it comes to us eating together as a spiritual family, that's often not very high on our priority list. I would say that the decline in the family meal, communion, the Lord's table, is evidencing itself both quantitatively and qualitatively. Quantitatively, the meal, communion, the Lord's table, actually marked the typical gathering of the early first century church. And yet now, we're actually scared of doing it too often. Normally, when asked, well, why, why, why do you not do communion more often? People say things like this. Well, we just want to keep it special. We don't, we don't, want, it, we don't, we don't want to burn it out. But we don't say that about preaching. We don't say that about music. We don't say that about our own family dinners. But all of a sudden it gets to church and we're like, I don't know if we want to do this too often. So quantitatively it's on the decline. Churches have agreed to say, okay, we're only going to do it once a month. We're going to do it once a month. Or if you grew up in the tradition that I grew up in, we only did it four times a year, once a quarter. We wanted to keep it really special. But I don't think, if I'm honest, I don't think that the the quantitative struggles that we have with communion are really a result of us, I mean, if we're honest, trying to keep it special. I think our quantitative failures are probably more likely a result of our qualitative failures. We come to communion often, often, with guilt and not with grace. We see it as a private celebration, not a public commemoration. Some of us view it as optional and not essential. And it's just a pattern. It's not something that is actually accomplishing anything. I was listening to D.A. Carson, uh, the French uh, or Canadian American new testament scholar and he was speaking on the subject of communion and he acknowledged something that i thought was uh helpful for us uh, and he's a pastor as well and he just said this to his congregation I, he said we sometimes walk away from church services with this feeling of extraordinary unreality like we went to something and we don't really know what happened it wasn't that meaningful like why, why what were we doing there He says, and it's not just something that we experience with church, it's something that we experience especially with the Lord's table. He says, we know that he's commanded it, but we don't feel anything. And in the long pauses, there may be more daydreaming than meditation. Some people feel downright uncomfortable. They're like, Okay, am I supposed to what am I supposed to be doing? I'm supposed to be thinking about my sin? Am I supposed to be like having sweet thoughts about Jesus? You know, you, you eat the little the the little piece of bread or you drink the cup, nothing magical happens. You're, you're trying to convince yourself of the importance of this. And it's more often a by faith experience, not a by feeling experience. And so because it doesn't resonate with us, we're just like, okay, Jesus has commanded us to do it, we'll do it. Therefore, let's not do it too much, because frankly it's boring. Now I don't think I don't think that's everybody in the room. <laughs> I just think it's a lot of us. Us. And the reason why we should talk about it is because communion. Outside of the preaching is the gospel, of the gospel is the only thing that constitutes us as a church. Like, how do you define a church? If you go back to the Anglican 39 articles, there's a good definition that people have believed for hundreds of years. The local visible church of Christ is a congregation of men and women in which the pure word of God is preached, and the sacraments or ordinances are duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance. Like, hey, this is like a two-stop shopping experience. I I, I mean, uh, there's only two things we do here really well. There's preaching and practicing ordinances. Like, that's what a church is. And so for a church to not do the, the communion thing well, it's like saying Subway doesn't do subs well. Which may be true. <laughs> Sorry if you work there. It's like saying a hospital just doesn't do medical care well. I mean like, it's, this is fundamental to, to what a church is. Yeah, it's the preaching of the Gospel uh, audibly, but it's the picturing of the Gospel. in the ordinances, that's, like, that's the two things we do. So, we want to make sure that we are doing that, that well. And so thankfully, God in His Word has given us this particular text. It's the only place outside of the Gospels itself that gives us any clarity at all as to what should be going on in our communion time together. Think about it. One of the non-negotiables of the church mentioned four times in the Gospels, mentioned one time here in 1 Corinthians 11, another time in 1 Corinthians 10, and then alluded to four times in the book of Acts. But the only place you have explicit instruction on what communion is and should be is right here in 1 Corinthians 11. Beginning... Hear me well, please. Beginning at verse 17 and continuing all the way down to verse 34. It's not, the the instructions for communion are not just verses 23 to 26, which is what we often always read in communion. Paul is talking about it beginning from verse 23 all the way down to verse 36. And so what we want to be able to, to note here is that he has something very specific in mind Uh, For this particular practice. And I just want to give you a little bit of background before I note Paul's prescriptions for communion as we prepare. Uh, Background number one is that this was a historically significant commemoration, a celebration of something. Earlier we read uh, Exodus uh, chapter 12 always like picking scripture reading where I know that people would be asking, why are we reading about the Passover? (laughs) Why are we reading about this particular text? God is always, like from the very beginning of the time that he instituted his people, he wanted there to be a public celebration or commemoration of his redemptive power one that would look ahead to a greater deliverance, one that would look behind to the deliverance that he's already accomplished. In particular, Passover was like the salvific moment of the Jewish people. They were redeemed from Egyptian bondage and slavery. They were brought out and made a people of God, and they were to commemorate on a yearly basis through a certain kind of meal this salvation that had been provided for them. And God... Like prescribe that. They practice that every year. And then Jesus commandeers that and says, the true Passover is coming. I am the Lamb who will die. You will continue to do this meal now in remembrance of Me. And so, He takes what was a -a one-time-a-year meal and says, keep doing this in remembrance of Me. The, the do this in remembrance, by the way, is a present active imperative. It's ongoing. Keep doing this in remembrance. Keep doing it. It's not like baptism. A baptism is be baptized one time. Communion is ongoing. It's something that should just keep going. Keep commemorating me in this particular way. When you're partaking of this meal, you're celebrating me. So, historically, this was a meal that was to be enjoyed on a regular basis by God's people. We see it, like, defining the church in Acts 2.42. It says they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, prayers. I mean, like, you remember this breaking of bread are already characterizing them early. In fact, one of the only insights into the early church gatherings that gives us a clear like, understanding of how they did things is in Acts chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. But in, in 20, chapter 20, verses 7 through 11, there's that fun passage everybody loves, especially for long-winded preachers, where they say, hey, remember that Eutychus guy? He fell out of the window because Paul was preaching too long. Because of the the sensationalism of a guy falling out of the window and potentially dying, like we miss what actually is going on there. So what what were they doing? Was this just a a late night preaching event? This was a church service. Listen to verse seven. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, that's why they were gathered together. They were gathered together to break bread. They were going to have a meal. Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Man, that's a long meal. (laughs) So they show up, they eat dinner and in the context of this dinner Paul is preaching to them and then notice verse 11 it says, And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. I mean, this was a meal that went all night long. Don't worry, not going there. (laughs) I'm just saying, friends, that if you're trying to see what the early church gathering was like, you would know they were getting together to commemorate Jesus through two things. The preached word and the pictured word. The preaching of the gospel, Paul did that, and the practice of this particular ordinance that like, identified them as part of the family of God. And I want to help you historically reconstruct like, what their services look like because you will not understand what Paul is talking about in Acts, I mean, 1 Corinthians 11 if you don't get the way that these services took shape. They're radically different than our services today. And by the way, this isn't some implicit argument that we have to do it just like they did it. I'm just telling you how it was. Services in that particular day and time I had to take place at night because there were no blue laws. Does anybody remember blue laws? Do you know what I mean when I say blue laws? Three people. Wow, I feel like an old man. So there used to be laws in this country that actually kept you from opening up on Sundays. I could like, <laughs> I'm sure to get people saying amen. Our country just needs to get back to, you know, Uh, Yes, that would be awesome. I mean, even the mail now runs on Sundays. Like, there's no break anymore. But it used to be a thing. Like, people would take Sundays off. You couldn't find anywhere to go. Here we are, like, we're ticked off at Chick-fil-A for not being open on Sundays, right? What's their problem? They don't have blue laws. There's no places closed on Sunday. It's an empire dedicated to a guy that claims to be God. You know, like, he just wants more productivity. They're just, they just keep rolling. So it's not like you get Sunday off. They don't get to show up to church like we do. So they had to get together at the first available time on the first day of the week, which was in the evening. So people after work would begin to gather together, typically in the home of a wealthier member. There were no church buildings until about the 150 to 250 mark in church history, A.D. So most people were meeting in big homes. And guess what? In a culture like the Greco-Roman uh, time period, the wealthy people didn't work. <laughs> they inherited a lot of money and estate. Guess what? They had all day, so, and it was normally hosted at their house. So they were there first, and they were there early. So imagine them rolling in at four o'clock, if you will. And then your typical day laborers, uh, they would get there maybe around 5 or 6 o'clock, and the lowest level slaves would have to work the longest, and they may not get there until 7 or 8 o'clock. Well, the way that the church service would work is that it would begin with a meal, and then it would transition into the message. Well, the meal that was supposed to be celebrating Christ, with broken bread to start it off and a final cup to end it, Like, these guys were going ahead with this. They were eating all of the food before everybody even got there. And so, what you had was a split down sociological lines. The wealthy were like in with Jesus because they commemorated his death and his resurrection. And the other people are like struggling because they just get leftovers and cold bread. They don't have anything to eat, which helps us understand, like, what's going on here. Like, Paul is. Ultra concerned about what's happening here. And specifically, this text, this is what we're going to do today, contrasts, it contrasts corrupted and correct ways to consume communion. 1 <laughs> Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 26, are a contrast of. Corrupted and correct ways of consuming communion. So, we want to commune correctly. Let's look first at a corrupt way to commune, and then we'll look at the correct way. So, verses 17 to 22. Communion is corrupted when consumed with an eye towards self and status. Communion is corrupted when consumed with an eye for self and status. I'll say it one more time. Communion is corrupted when consumed with an eye for self and status. Now, with that historical background that I just gave you, listen again to Paul's uh, admonition, 17. He says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church... What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. (laughs) Does that make more sense now? Do you get what's going on here? Like, Notice what he says in verse 17. It is actually possible, check this out, to get together and do church and make things worse. I know we think, well, if we just show up, it's going to be good. You can actually do church in such a way that when you show up, you make it worse. And you're like, Dag on! I, how do I avoid that? <laughs> I mean, how is it possible that anybody could actually show up and do church in such a way that Paul would say, it'd probably be better for you not to do church? What would be so bad? Well, he, he spells it out in verse 18. He says, uh, when you come together as a church, uh, here it is. Here's the first thing. Here's the big problem. I hear that there are divisions among you. So when people come to church and they're divided, when they're supposed to be one assembly, one group, and they're breaking up into smaller groups, he's saying that, you know what, this is actually terrible for you. And what I find is interesting, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. It's like for Paul, this is such a terrible thing that he can't fully believe it. For us, can you contrast this with the way we typically think of things? We're like, yeah, yeah. It's just the way churches are, Clicks happen, you know, people break up into smaller groups, we can't help it. Paul can't even fathom it. He's like, I'm having a really hard time believing it, but somebody's told me, so I believe in part that it actually may be true that when you guys show up to church that y'all are breaking up into groups that, that are smaller than the unit of the church itself and you've got your own things going on. You're You're divided. And he says in verse 19, that you know what? Guys, this is actually a good thing. Anybody else stunned by that? Notice. He says, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? He's saying, hey, you know what? if it has to happen, if it has to happen that you're going to like break up into your little cliques and your other sectarian groups, it's, it's, it's a good thing because it actually shows which of you are actually approved by God. Getting together to do church. If people are coming together and they're breaking up into different groups, they will reveal, they will reveal by their breaking up whether they belong to Jesus or not whether they're approved by God or not. You know it's totally possible, folks, for people to come to church for reasons other than Jesus. I mean, classic example could just be somebody at church to pick up women, somebody at church to expand their business. Maybe they're a multi-level marketer. (laughs) Maybe they're coming to church to actually like propagate some new fancy idea of theirs. Maybe they're doing it for respectability in the community. What Paul is saying is that people will continue to come to church, and guess what? Sometimes they will break into little groups, but those groups will betray a different center of orbit. He's going to ultimately point out that there's going to be a group that orbits around the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then there's going to be these other groups who orbit around... Social prominence, status, good food and wine, but not Jesus. And so, he goes on to say that when this happens, even if you're eating the Lord's Supper, you're partaking of that bread and the other food and the wine that represents His blood, even if that's happening, verse 20, he says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat if your way of doing church is about your proclivities and your preferences and what you want, and it's not about the Lord Jesus, it's possible that even when you're doing communion, you're not at the Lord's table, you're at your own table. (laughs) You're not commemorating Him. You're doing it for yourself. Because what was going on there is seen in verse 21. In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Now this is hard for us because we're thinking like communion as the little piece of bread in the little cup, but remember they saw communion as the bread that would be broken to eat the entire meal with. Um, we, we're we so germaphobic. Like we, we have like plastic forks and stuff. I mean tonight we're doing Jason's deli boxes so that you know it's clear that everybody's hands weren't on the same food, but like in, in an ancient Near Eastern context, you understand that when they would eat food, there would be a huge bowl in like the middle of the table, and everybody would receive like bread, like lavash, it would be broken off, and they would be scooping the, the pita, if you will, into the same bowl. Their fingernails. Their fingernails. Read the food. And Paul talks about the cup. There was one cup. They would pour that wine out into one big chalice and everybody would drink of it. Did you know that Baptist churches all the way up to the 1880s were doing that? In fact, the practice of the common cup didn't stop for good until like 1920 after the Spanish flu broke out in the United States. The point is, what they were doing was indeed a sign of Christ's body and His blood, but it was also a sign of their belonging with one another. Isn't there something sweet and intimate about a meal eaten close quarters with someone else? Why is it that when a couple wants to go out for a romantic evening, they, they eat at a small table with a little candle and they're sitting close together, as opposed to like spreading themselves out, you know, like, well, you get your space and I get my space, and let's just eat comfortably apart. No. They're conveying closeness. Like this meal was to convey a closeness, a closeness with Christ, and because of that, a closeness with one another. He was the center of orbit. And so every time, this, this meal was like, you belong to the Father through the Son, and therefore you belong to one another. And they had made it totally about themselves. They had figured out a way just to come and fill their bellies. Again, I know what we're thinking. Well, whew, I don't have to worry about filling my belly with the little cracker and the little piece of juice. Not be problem solved. But listen, friends, even though we don't typically practiced communion the way that they did, what Paul is referring to here is how they got together to do what you call church. And I'll tell you this, broaden it out from communion to just your experience at church, and it's easy to see how we could come in to a place like this, a gathering like this, and just consume and gorge ourselves with whatever it is we think we need, whatever our needs are that need to be met, like wanting people to, to serve us, the music to serve us, the temperature in the room to serve us, the comfort of the chairs to serve us, like everything to serve us and not actually be centered around here, Jesus Christ, Him crucified, and His people. Paul is saying, like, be careful that you're not just coming to church and going, man, I, I, I got filled today. It was good service. It, it met the needs of my heart. And while you may be stuffed, other people may have left hungry. They may have left neglected. He says, don't just make this about yourself. Make it about the Savior and His people. And so, friends, this, this meal was to commemorate their oneness together with the Father through the Son. And it was to convey their belonging. I... Um, I I've had the privilege to be on several sports teams through my years. Um, I've told you before, I was a mediocre athlete. Somebody uh, came to me the other day. They said, I heard you were a terrible athlete. I said, no. I said, I was a mediocre athlete. There's a difference. <laughs> but being in a smaller Christian school, it was kind of neat because I got to be on several different sports teams. The school was small enough that I just I got to do it all. And almost every time one of these seasons would end, we would do this like year-end banquet to just commemorate what we had done together as a team. There would be individual awards going out, but the whole point was just to celebrate what we had accomplished as a team. Could you imagine as an insecure eighth grader if I would have showed up to one of those events and I found out that all the food had already been eaten and they decided to get started early without me? Like, if everybody just went ahead with the thing, and there was no food left, I just showed up. Like, I'm, I'm not a part. Like, the hurt that that would communicate, like, everybody making sure that they got their stuff, and they had their party, and they celebrated their, you know, like, their win, their season, but I wasn't a part. Now, for those of us as Americans who are thinking, like, absolutely not, could never happen, there's no way, we have scheduling apps, you have an iPhone, like, you would have known you understand that in a first century uh, context and in many places in the east today people don't run by watches remember the first time i was in uh, eastern europe moldova and we were supposed to be for a family a church meal excuse me at 6 p.m and i'm thinking 6 (laughs) p.m and i get there at 6 p.m and i am ticked off that nobody else is there at 6 p.m Nor were they there at 7 (laughs) p.m. Only half of them were there at 8 p.m. And we didn't start eating till 9 p.m. It's the way they do it. It's about the relationship. When does the event start? The event starts when everybody gets there. You understand this is how communion was going. The way that they should have done it is just to wait to make sure that everybody gets included in this commemoration. Everybody should be included in this celebration. And by going ahead with it, they were saying it doesn't matter what everybody else does, especially the poor and the marginalized, those who don't have the freedom to get here at a certain time. Like Friends, we need to remember like, like this was supposed to be a picture of oneness per, with God provided by the sacrifice of His Son and therefore we should care about the group and not just ourselves. That's the danger. Let me be practical. That is the danger of the traditional way that we do communion. You get your own little plastic cup, you get your own little piece of bread, and you're not even supposed to like, look at anybody around you. It's like your private time with Jesus. And indeed, there is a personal relationship with God, but a, a oneness with God entails also a oneness with His people. And so communion not only conveys personal allegiance, but corporate allegiance to Christ. And so we need time to recognize one another. Each person matters. Each person should be partaking. We should be asking ourselves, this is why I do this. You know, when we do traditional communion, I would normally end it this way, saying there were some people who weren't able to gather with us today. My prayer is that you would reach out to them at some point by the end of the day, look through the directory, and tell them that they were missed. You know what I'm doing there? I've never seen that done. And I'm not trying to be cute and creative. I'm just trying to honor in our exercise of the Lord's table, the corporate element of communion. We've got widows who couldn't be here today. We've got people who have been distracted by sin and haven't been in the fellowship for months who weren't able to be here today. Like, communion should just be a regular reminder that we were able to partake and portray the Lord, but there were some who were not able, and we need to include them. It's not just about me, it's about us. I would say that this could be true when we do historical communion like we'll do tonight, is we have a real meal. That bread that represents Jesus' broken body opens the meal. That cup would close the meal. But tonight, we're going to have tables sitting up so that people can come. But can I warn you, friends, like if you're going to honor the spirit of this, if you want to do this corruptly, just go and say, I'm looking forward to a mediocre sandwich and people meeting my needs. That's a corrupt practice of communion. You want to do it the right way? You say, you know what? I'm not here for the food. I'm here for the fellowship. I'm here to like represent Jesus. And I want to enjoy this commemoration and reminder of his broken body. And I want to enjoy this celebration of his shed blood. And I want to make sure that others needs are met while I am here. I grew up What I would consider to be deep south, if you can call North Carolina that, the traditions are strong, and one of my favorite was called homecoming. Did anybody in here grow up up in a church that had homecoming? Does anybody know what that is? Okay. So in in southern churches, like homecoming is when all the people who got angry at your church and left and went somewhere else, they come back once a year to eat dinner (laughs) with the whole church. So it's a huge event. It's typically in October. And at our particular church, we would set up, like, like the guys would get to church on a Saturday. They'd have a, a, a prayer breakfast, which was just a breakfast. And then we would actually spend the, the other four hours of the day building, I'm not kidding, building tables that we would string across the whole parking lot. And by I meant building tables, we would put these like two by fours up and they would put wire mesh across. And you just had these huge long lines of tables. And while they were doing that, it was so cool. All the, all the old ladies are, like, are out there like baking and making stuff. Everybody's making food. You normally bring in a southern gospel quartet of some kind to sing. You bring in a guest preacher. Like Everybody shows up. It's a big shindig. And the, the deal is that you all eat this meal together afterwards showing that, hey, everybody's home. It's family. Even though they weren't. And the craziest thing would happen in that dynamic, like here we are having this huge homecoming meal, like this celebration, and inevitably every year when I celebrated homecoming, this is what I would do. A, I would fight to get to the front of the line as a child (laughs) because you didn't want all the good stuff to be gone. And then you would pick out all the things that you wanted out of the meal, and without fail, every year, I would end up sitting with my family, eating my grandmother's food at homecoming. And everybody else from the four prominent families in our church would end up sitting with their families eating their grandmother's food. And what was supposed to be this beautiful celebration of everybody getting together just became a thing about me, myself, I, my, my family members, my last name. Now, I give you that as an illustration to say that anytime our church is getting together, this isn't just a private experience for you and your family. I loved having the opportunity to sit with my family today and sing, and like we're a unit, but like we're on mission. We're supposed to be like when we're here to make sure we're reaching out to others in the body as well. We're not consumers merely; we should be contributors. And whether it's communion or whether it's the corporate gathering, like we need to be like on game to be like this isn't about me alone. It's about Christ's people. I want to make sure that He's on display through everybody. My prayer would be for us is that no one would leave communion and be like, no one talked to me. Like, we've got to be on. We're supposed to be representing Jesus in this. Church is not just about us. So on the one hand, get it friends, communion is corrupted when when it's consumed with an eye for self and status. But communion can be corrected. This is good news. Here's good news. Communion is correctly consumed when it's partaken of with an eye for the Savior and His saints. So instead of coming to the fellowship, the communion, with an eye toward self and status, we come to the fellowship and the communion with an eye toward the Savior and His saints. The Savior and His saints. Look, look at how Paul fixes the problem. And may I just note this? Will you just give me a few more minutes of your mental energy? Verse 26 is connected to verses 17 through 25. Or Excuse me. Verse, sorry, that makes no sense. Verse 23 is connected to verses 17 through 22. We parachute in and we always read that middle portion, but for Paul, everything he's going to say in this passage is a corrective to their selfish partaking of church and communion. Are you ready for it? Notice how he points their eyes to Jesus in this meal. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for y'all. Sorry, i have to do that here, but it's true. It's plural. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way He took the cup, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as y'all drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as y'all eat this bread and drink the cup, y'all proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you hear the corporate element of what he's talking about here? He's focusing them on Christ and on one another. He's saying that this meal was not about a, your personal birthday party. We're not celebrating you in this. We're celebrating Jesus and by celebrating what Jesus paid for with His sacrifice, we also celebrate the people that He has brought in to His family. I think this is massive for us to understand. It's something that, that, that we often can lose sight of, because normally when we partake of communion, our eyes are on ourself. We're like, at least me. I'm like, alright, have I sinned in any way this week? Did I do anything wrong? Can I partake in this particular moment? You know, like, is there anything I need to confess? Is there anything I need to do? And, and instead of actually coming to the meal with a focus on Christ, we come focused on ourselves. And by, may I just say that that makes for a miserable dinner. <laughs> Paul is going to go on and say, hey, let none of you partake unworthily. Can I just note something? Unworthily is an adverb. It's not an adjective. He doesn't say, if you're unworthy, don't partake. We're all unworthy. Unworthily means don't partake in the wrong way. What does it look like to partake in the wrong way? It is to partake in such a way where Christ is not the ultimate focus of what you're celebrating and you also neglect to focus on the people that He's died for. There's two things that we're looking at in communion. One is the payment of Christ. The second is that which he paid for. It's easy for us to focus on the sacrifice, but I think we forget that Christ's sacrifice did something. It bought something, and what did it buy? It did not just purchase your individual salvation, although that is true. It purchased the redemption of God's community, his group. Like we're to look at one another through the shed blood of His Son and see them as part of the same family. It's a time to commemorate Him by also remembering them. They were to partake of this meal hyper aware that Christ presided over it. That His sacrifice secured the relationship with all His people expressed therein. Friends, when we participate in a symbol or a ceremony, it is saying something. Like, and what Jesus intends for us to do is to say something, to picture something in doing this meal together. I think that in our American context, we have few opportunities to, particu- to participate in public ceremony. But one of those that we've seen to great effect over the course of the last 200 years is none other than the saying of the National Anthem and the singing of the Star-Spangled Banner. And now that it's football season, do any of you remember just a few years ago the rage and the frustration that you felt when certain NFL football players, when the National Anthem was being sung, would not even put their hands over their hearts but would kneel on the ground in active protest? Was anybody else ticked off about that or was it just me? This was supposed to be an expression of our solidarity. People had died so that we could express that kind of freedom together, so that we could, like, sing of of this liberty that we enjoyed as a country. And then some people, by their very actions, by, by their ceasing to do what the group was doing, were saying, I'm not a part of that, not my country. It's a window into what Paul has in mind here. Basically, he's saying that when you are partaking of communion, it is a corporate act of allegiance to the Lord Jesus. A corporate act, not just an individual act. It's something we do as a group. I'm sure the NFL football players in question should could have in their own Private rooms expressed allegiance to our country. But the point was that they were going to do this as a group. Paul is saying this isn't a private act. This is a communal act. And together we're conveying something about Christ and the people for which he died. That's why he's saying, remember, remember his broken body and what it purchased. Remember his shed blood and what it purchased. And then he says this, not only look back, but look ahead. When you do this, he ends, you're proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. It's an enacted sign that one day, just as we enjoy this meal with one another tonight, we're going to enjoy an even better meal with Christ to come. Everybody's in the family meal now, but one day, the, the, the founder of the family will be sitting at the head of the table, and we will enjoy the meal with him. It is just a small sign of that which is to come, but we're saying something when we do it together. I'm looking forward to that day. We are looking forward to that day. I love the the line from Keith and Kristen Getty in their song, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. We don't sing it as much, but in the second verse it says this, Beneath the cross of Jesus, His family is my own. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved beneath the cross of Jesus? See the children called by God. The power of the cross isn't just our personal redemption. The power of the cross is our inclusion in God's group, His family, and we're celebrating that together as we commune. We pledge allegiance together again. One of my uh, favorite business books from the last few years has been this Uh, interesting study on uh, team dynamics, chemistry. You know what it's like, like when when people just seem to click. The title of the book is called The Culture Code. It's written by this guy named Daniel Coy, and he's tried to put together like all the best teams, whether they be, you know, basketball teams or they be certain employees, uh, certain businesses. Like, what is it that makes them click? What is it that makes them get together? There's how is it that they belong um, and, and have such camaraderie? And, and he, he shows through his research, it's a little technical, but he introduces us to a concept that I've referenced before, but I'd here like to define. He says: Groups that have a strong culture um, have a myriad of belonging cues. Belonging cues. They cue to one another that they belong. I'll define it with his words. He says, belonging cues are behaviors that create safe connection in groups. They include, among others, proximity, eye contact, energy, mimicry, turn-taking, attention, body language, vocal pitch, consistency of emphasis, or whether anyone talks to everyone else in the group. Like any language, belonging cues can't be reduced to an isolated moment, but rather consist of a steady pulse of interactions within a social relationship. Basically what he's saying is like through the way that we act with other people, they can tell whether or not they belong or whether they don't. We all know what it's like for somebody to be sitting like huddled like this and it's like they don't want to talk to anybody. And we know what it's like for somebody to be so invested in us, they're like up in our face to a degree that we're almost like uncomfortable. They keep using their hands and they're like, it's like they're trying to pull us into them. What he's saying is the healthiest cultures communicate with, with with one another in such a way that they're pulling one another in. And it made me think of that classic symbol of the belonging cue of the family table. Is it not at the normal dinners that a family enjoys together, that everyone takes turn in conversation, that everyone shares from a common plate? That everyone enjoys the same conversation. Everyone partakes of the same food. You wait for everyone to get there. You pray together. You end the meal together. The activity leading up to the meal to prepare it is for a common goal. The activity leading away from the meal to clean up from it, like it's belonging cues. Like it's the sign that you're a part. And now I'm thinking, like, how genius of God. That the sign of belonging for His people would be none other than a meal. Isn't it funny how we tend to think that if we really were going to be close and strong as a church, we would do more fellowships, which are meals, but we don't think that we would do more communions. Like if you were like, man, I wish this church was a little warmer. Nobody's saying like, yeah, we need to do more communion. Communion. What they say is, you know, we need to do a church dinner. Well, if we understood that communion was a church dinner, like it actually would do... And so the point is, friends, like we have a belonging queue. I pray that when we come to this, this dinner tonight, that we would come in full anticipation of Christ having purchased for Himself a people... And that we communicate that in the conversations with one another and in the common enjoyment of this dinner that we would seek each other out, that we would look for one another. And even when we're not doing communion, every fellowship being marked by that kind of intentionality, welcome to the family meal. How odd would it be at our little family of seven for one child to sit at the end of the table by himself and not to participate in the conversation with everybody else? And yet my fear is that so many come to this place week in, week out, and they sit by themselves. They know no one, no one knows them, and we're missing out on the opportunity to include more in this conveying of Christ's love that should be marking this particular gathering. That's the danger of a church that focuses on an attractional model that tries to make everything about the stage. They turn the lights down on the congregation. They turn the lights up on the stage. That You have the best singers, the best performers, the best speakers. And it's not about the group. It's about the, 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 the show. We keep the lights on. We keep the windows. Like, like, like There's a lot of natural light. You know that glass wall up there? You've probably not noticed it. That's not because they were thinking, like, we need to be able to check on Justin, like, what he's doing. (laughs) The glass wall is to allow more natural light into the room so that we can see one another. Like, this thing is about Christ and his people. And so, friends, I just want to encourage you that communion is a grace, it's not a guilt, it's a public celebration. It's not a private experience. It's an essential. It's not an option. And it's a proclamation. It's not a performance. As we look to the time together tonight, I would encourage you to do three things. One, to enter in. There may be some of you who don't know if you should partake of something like a meal together that commemorates Christ because you don't know if you're included in Christ. Can I tell you something? That inclusion in Christ isn't for the worthy. It's for the unworthy. It's for those who recognize themselves to be rebels against God and His ways and who have just turned from their sin and trusted in the finished work of Jesus alone. That is who the meal is for. Anyone trusting in Jesus alone. Now that you've met some perfect standard but Christ has met the standard on your behalf. His death has satisfied God's wrath for you. His life and resurrection has been applied to you and your account, and you live before Him by faith and faith alone. If that is you, we would encourage you to come and partake of this meal with us tonight. And if you don't know what that is like, you don't know if you're in the family, talk to somebody around you before you leave. Enter. Enjoy. Friends, don't, yeah, sure, examine yourselves. If you have any things that you need to make right with another person, do that. But like, I don't like emphasizing the confession of sin before communion because we should be confessing our sin all the time. Why wait till communion? So, 1 John one eight nine. 9 confess your sin anytime you sin. Don't wait for communion. But when I say this, like, sure, confess sin, but come to celebrate Christ. Come to celebrate Christ. Not to beat yourself up to see whether or not you're worthy. Just come. Partake. Enjoy. You're part of the family. We want to communicate that in our time together tonight. Enter. Enjoy. It's that that simple. That's what we're we're trying to do. And my prayer is that we'll do that more and more and better and better as the church, the family of God. We're going to sing to close out our time, just thanking Jesus for making us part of his family. It's that simple today. If you have a question about what it means to be part of his family, please reach out to one of us. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. I'll close this in prayer, and then we'll say thank you to the Lord together in preparation for our meal tonight. Father in heaven, we are grateful for what you've done to include us in your family through the sacrifice of your son. Thank You for the simplicity of a commemorative meal that celebrates that. I pray that the fellowship tonight would be rich and meaningful as we look to the Savior and to His saints and not to ourselves and our own status. But may every gathering of our church be marked by this one another love rooted in the love that You have shown for us through the sacrifice and resurrection of Your Son.